Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Riverwood. Everyone have a good Christmas? Don't you hate it when pastors ask you a question as if it's like talking to one person, expecting everyone to have had the exact same experience? Right? Because some of you may be sitting there going, no, it wasn't very good. Like, I was alone. I didn't get the presents I wanted. Santa gave me coal. Uh, you know, it might be bad. So if you had a great Christmas, I'm glad you're here. And I hope that today kind of helps to cap this off uh, for you. And if you had a horrible Christmas, I'm glad you're here. Because I hope that today encourages you, inspires you, and makes you say, you know what, Jesus is worth it. I'm going after him regardless of how my Christmas was. Many, many years ago, I ran into Bill. Bill was an elder at the church where I was on staff. This is about 2002. And his daughter had been engaged to a man. Well, I guess before I jump into her her story, um, I ran into Bill at the store. We were both out Christmas shopping. All right, and so I, I did the normal Iowa thing. I said, so how you doing? And Bill paused, and he looks at me and says, you want to know the truth? I'm not doing very well at all. Now, I knew some of his story, and some of it included his daughter. She, she was in college. She was a senior. She was engaged to this dynamic guy. I think he'd been like student body president of their, their college. And the, the guy got injured horribly in a really bad accident and ended up, Instead of being like now a student body president, like he couldn't talk anymore. He was now blind. I mean, he was basically just kind of on life support. It was really, really sad. At the same time that this was happening, my friend Bill, being an elder of a church, he, he kind of was desiring to be a pastor. And so he applied for a pastoral position at a church, and he got passed over. They didn't hire him. And so that was really disappointing to him. But then the company he was working for, they went through a really rough time, and they laid off a lot of people, and he was one of them. It was, needless to say, 2001, 2002 were bad years for Bill. And so there as I stood in the store with him, I mean, I knew all this stuff kind of academically, but it was a whole different experience to be there in the store talking with him and realizing this guy is hurting. He is sad, really sad. Kids, have you ever had a moment where you just felt really, really sad? You just felt like everything was going wrong. You get a bad grade. Your friends aren't nice to you. It just, is, it's bad. It's in those moments that we begin to question God. Now, last week as part of our Seek series, we talked about this idea of seeking hope. And we talked about being in an emotional pit, of being in spiritual darkness. We, we talked about being in Narnia, where it was always winter and never Christmas, Like, it was just really, really hard. But sometimes when those difficult moments, it isn't just kind of hard. It gets us to a point where we actually begin to question God, and we actually begin to wonder, can I trust God? That's where my friend Bill was. As I stood there in the store, and he began to dump all this out, he was basically saying, I don't know how much more I can take And he was wondering, is God in control? Because if he is, and God's allowing all this, then God seems kind of cruel. And I don't know if I can trust him. Or if God can't stop all this, then maybe he's powerless. And I don't know if I can trust him either. Today, what we're going to see in Matthew chapter 2, if you've got a Bible or you've got an app on your phone, open it up to Matthew chapter 2. What we're going to see today is something that's very, very difficult to read. It's hard to see. 
But what we're going to see is that when you look at it from one perspective, you'll immediately go, oh, yeah, it's easy to trust God. But when you look at the same exact story from another perspective, you're going to question yourself and wonder, can I trust God? And today, what we have to do is we've got to move from having a horizontal perspective of life and exchange it for a heavenly perspective. Because when we begin to see life from God's perspective, it changes the entire equation, and we find trust to be very easy. And that's what I hope will help us today. So let's pray. Father, as we get ready to jump into the scriptures, would you be our teacher today? Whether uh, it's for a kid who's, who's five years old and, and listening to this, or it's someone who's in their 60s and has been following you for a long time, I pray, Father, that you would speak to each of us today, that your word would be powerful. And I ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. I've asked my friend Miguel to come up and uh, share Matthew 2. So please silently read along, whether on your Bible or up on the screen, as he reads aloud. Okay. Uh, Matthew two thirteen through 23. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Herod kills the children. Um, Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because there are no more. But when Herod died, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there, and being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that when what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. All right, thank you, Miguel. All right, so what I want to do today is I want to look at this from three different perspectives. The first perspective we see right there in verse 13. We see Joseph and Mary. Their perspective. I want you to see what it was like for them. It was probably a little bit scary, right? Because suddenly Joseph, in the middle of the night, has a dream and is told, hey, Herod's on his way to try and destroy the child. Get up, go, and head off to Egypt. Now, we looked at the very beginning of the Seek series at Joseph and Mary. And what we saw was that they were uh, coming all the way from Nazareth down to Bethlehem. Oh, 
Yeah. Moms and dads, by the way, we do have a, a nursery down the hall with toys out. If your kids need uh, some time to play, that's totally fine, all right, uh, if they need to go out, all right? And, and kids, you guys have freedom to, to listen, to do the activity bags, to take notes. You guys can do what you guys need to, all right? So, but I hope you guys get something out of this as well, all right? What we saw, though, in week one of the series was that Mary and Joseph had to travel about 70 miles from Bethlehem, I mean, from Nazareth all the way to Bethlehem. And it was kind of a hard trip. But now suddenly God says, get up and take off and go to Egypt. That was about another 90 miles. However, that was just 90 miles to the border. For them to get to civilization was an additional 60 miles. So they had to travel about 150 miles. And probably a lot of it, kind of desert, dry area. What are they going to do for water? What are they going to do for food? And they have to like pack up their things and go. I'm sure it was a little bit scary. And it was kind of a close call. Have any of you ever seen those close call videos? Like on my Facebook feed, every once in a while, someone will post one, like what you're seeing behind me right now. You see some car driving down the road, like just narrowly miss, you know, a semi. I can see several of your faces like right now going like, ooh, like watch out. Okay, no one dies in any of these videos, all right? Everyone's safe. Nothing gets, you know, too horribly hurt. But you sit there and look at it going, whoa, that was a really close call, all right? Yeah, you're all cringing right now. Anytime you meet someone who has survived one of those, what do they say? Oh, I must have had a guardian angel watching out for me. Oh, the big man upstairs was taking care of me. In fact, I have a friend here in Waverly who was in a horrible bike accident this past summer. Right? For one hour, he was paralyzed from the neck down, and he thought, this is it. And suddenly his, his uh, extremities, the, the feeling returned. He can now walk, move his hands, everything. But he realizes God had a reason. God is letting me do this. I have a purpose. If you ask someone who survives one of those like, close calls, who comes through this, they would probably say, yeah, I can trust God. I mean, because look what he did. He got me through this. This is what Mary and Joseph had. They had a close call. The Magi, the wise men, show up. They're only six miles from Jerusalem. And Herod, if you remember when we looked at the Magi two weeks ago, Herod said to them, hey, go down and worship the child and then come back and tell me if he's really there so that I can go worship him as well. It was a lie. Herod was going to go down and try and kill baby Jesus. But the Magi, they go the six miles. It was an afternoon's walk. All right, they take off right after lunch. They make it in time for supper. Here, the sun's starting to set. They meet baby Jesus. They worship him. Maybe they spend the night. Maybe they spend some time talking with Mary and Joseph. And then... Instead of returning back to Herod, God warns the Magi in a dream, don't return, go ahead and head home. And so they go a different route, and they start heading back home, whether it be Babylon or Persia, and they take off. Well, a couple days later, Herod suddenly realizes, um, it only takes you like four or five, maybe six hours to walk from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. These guys should be back by now. Like, okay, they can spend the night, they can enjoy lunch with Mary and Joseph, but they should be back. We should know where this child is because I want to go and kill him. And Herod realizes they tricked me. And so God says to Mary and Joseph, all right, go, get out of here. Who knows? Maybe it was the night while the Magi were still there. Maybe they're both taken off at the same time. Or maybe it's the very next day. All we know is that God warns Joseph in a dream, get out of town. And they take off. They have a close call. And not only that, we see Mary, I mean, we see Joseph have two more dreams. If you notice down in uh, verse 20, 
after they're all the way in Egypt, in a dream, God says uh, through an angel, hey, take the child and go back to Israel because the man who's looking for him to kill him, he's now dead. And so Joseph packs up his family. They make the trip all the way back. And right as they're getting to Jerusalem, they start to get scared because now they've learned that Herod's son is the king. Oh, is he going to try and do the same thing as his dad? Is he going to try and kill our kid? And so they get scared. And so in another dream, God says, all right, go home. Go back to your hometown of Nazareth. And so they head back there, and that's where they remained. If you look at it from Mary and Joseph's perspective, it's easy to say, yes, you can trust God. God was leading them and guiding them the whole way. And yeah, there were some scary moments, but they were kept safe. I think many of us try to insert ourselves into the story, and we would look at it from Mary and Joseph's perspective. I mean, because they're the ones that we meet back in Luke chapter 1. You know, Mary's this sweet little girl. The angel shows up, says, you're going to have a baby. And she's like, how is this possible? And he's like, well, God's going to take care of that. Right? And so, boom, baby Jesus, he's going to be a king. These shepherds show up. You get these wise men bringing gifts. I mean, it's a pretty cool story, right? And so we identify with them going, man, look at how you can trust God. Now look at it from the perspective of the parents of Bethlehem. Are you going to say the same thing? Because look, verse 16 says, Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet, A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. These were good Jewish people, raised to trust in a sovereign God. They had heard the stories of God parting the Red Sea to let the people through. They'd heard the stories of God bringing the food to feed the people in the desert. They'd heard the stories of God doing the miraculous to take care of people. So he's therefore a God who can be trusted. And now he's let their little two-year-old boy die. Can he be trusted? Because if he is in control then he's cruel because he allowed my little two-year-old kid to get cut down. And if he couldn't stop it, then he's powerless, and therefore he can't be trusted either. This is the argument that many people who come to an understanding of atheism believe. In fact, there recently was an interview with a guy named Stephen Fry. You've probably seen a movie in which Stephen Fry was an actor, and he's well-known for his atheism. And so he was recently asked, what if you're wrong? What if you do go to heaven and you approach the pearly gates what will you say to God? Here's some of that interview. Suppose it's all true, and you walk up to the pearly gates, and you are confronted by God. What will Stephen Fry say to him, her, or it? I will basically, what's known as the Odyssey, I think, I, I'll say, bone cancer in children? What's that about? How dare you? How dare you create a world in which there is such misery that is not our fault? It's not right. It's utterly, utterly evil. Why should I respect a capricious, mean-minded, stupid God who creates a world which is so full of injustice and pain? That's what I would say. I have a feeling that's probably what some of the Bethlehem parents would be saying. Now, there's so much I would love to say in response to Stephen, 
But what I'm just going to say right now is this is probably how the parents in Bethlehem felt. Really? My two-year-old son? This is how you would treat this innocent kid? How dare you? And they would come to a place where they're beginning to struggle with trust. This is where my friend Bill was in that store when we were Christmas shopping. He'd had so much coming against him that he was now on the verge of saying, I don't know if God can be trusted. But if you notice, Mary and Joseph and the people who would try to identify with them, their trust of God is based in their circumstances. Because, I mean, everything's going great. I mean, I got the job, I got the spouse, we had the kid. Everything's going wonderfully. God can be trusted. But then on the other side, you have the people who find out that their loved one has just passed away. They've been diagnosed with cancer. They get fired from their job. Their kids are being rebellious and horrific to them. There's nothing but pain in life. And they just look at you and they say, to believe in a benevolent God? No way. I don't think he could be trusted. And it's also based upon circumstance. So is our trust of God just limited to our experience? Is it only if, hey, everything's going good? Yeah, I can trust him. Oh, but things aren't going so good. I don't know if I can. This is why today I want you to go into the third perspective. I want you to go from just the horizontal perspective of the things of this earth and this life, and I want to see it go higher and be exalted, where you look at it from a heavenly perspective. That when you see God's perspective looking down, it writes the story in a completely different way. And we see that three different times in this passage. And it happens in these three prophecies. The first one's in verse 15. Matthew quotes from Hosea. He says, Out of Egypt I called my son. This is Hosea 11, chapter 1. When Hosea wrote this, he was writing it for the people. And they would read it and they would say, Well, this is referring to the Israelites. Back in the book of Exodus, they were in slavery in Egypt. God sent Moses. All the plagues took place, these miracles. Moses leads the people out of Egypt. And they eventually, after wandering in the desert for 40 years, end up in the promised land. Well, God, being the amazing guy that he is, can not only embed truth in that refers to one place in time, but where it also, the truth, embeds for someone else at the same time, simultaneously. And Matthew sees that. Matthew sees that God is not only writing for these people referring back to the book of Exodus, but that also something else is taking place. That Jesus, being the ultimate Jew, the completion of the Jews, is going to fully identify with the Jewish nation. And part of that is going to Egypt so that he too might be called out of Egypt. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel. The Jews always seem to be in captivity, whether it be in Egypt or in Babylon or under the Assyrian Empire. And they were longing for a Messiah to free them. But what they really needed was a Messiah who would free them from sin. And Jesus, showing them that he fully identified with them, even as a baby, goes to Egypt so that he too could be called out. God is saying through this prophecy, I'm in control. I know the whole story. When I told Hosea this about the Jews back then, I also was predicting the coming of my son that he too would go to Egypt and be called out. God is seeing the fuller story. We see it again in the next prophecy. Skip down to verse 20. I'm sorry, uh, 18. Uh, 
This is where he quotes from Jeremiah 31.15. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. When Jeremiah wrote this, he refers to the nation of Israel as Rachel. Rachel is a, a biblical character from the book of Genesis. She was married to a guy named Jacob. Jacob's the guy who wrestled with God in the middle of the night. And because he wrestled with God, he later gets named Israel, which means to wrestle with God. And so Jacob, when he was a young man, he saw Rachel and he thought, wow, she's pretty. And he wanted to marry her. But then through a little bit of trickery, Rachel's dad actually got Jacob to marry her older sister, Leah. And Leah wasn't nearly quite as pretty. But Jacob finds himself with Leah as a wife, and he gets mad at his new dad-in-law. And his dad-in-law goes, hey, hey, wait, 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 wait. We always have to marry off the first daughter. And I mean, look at her. No one would marry her. So I've got to give her to you. All right, you can also now have her younger sister, Rachel. So Jacob ends up with two wives. Well, Leah, the first wife, the unwanted wife, she starts having all sorts of babies. Rachel, she can't have any. And back then, a woman found her worth through having children. And so because she couldn't have any kids, she thought she wasn't nearly as good. And Leah, she's thinking like, man, I'm having babies like crazy. I must be really valuable. So Rachel says, all right, Jacob, I want you to take my servant, my slave, and make her one of your wives, and I will have kids through her. And so now he has three wives, and they start having more babies. And Leah gets upset, like it's a competition. So she's like, here, have my servant, and then we can have more kids. And then finally, Rachel has a son. His name was Joseph. Joseph, the guy who ends up having dreams, who says to his brothers, hey, guess what? I had a dream, and you guys are all going to bow down to me and worship me like I'm a king. And they're like, uh, no, we're not. And they throw him in a pit, and they ship him off into slavery. Right? Well, that woman, Rachel... She was identified with her husband, Jacob, who was known as Israel. And Israel had to watch Babylon come in and take the people off into captivity. Could you imagine being a mom, seeing these mean soldiers come in and they round up your kids and decide, nah, you, we're leaving you. And you get left behind as your kids get taken off to Babylon. You'd probably cry. You'd probably weep. You'd probably feel like the world just ended. And people might try to come and comfort you, and you might say, I can't be comforted unless you bring back my kids. And I will bet some of these moms and dads who got left behind as their kids were shipped off to Babylon probably wondered, can God be trusted? But there's another layer here. Rachel, she not only had Joseph, but she had one more kid. His name, Benjamin. The bad thing was, the labor was really, really hard. And they didn't have good doctors like we do. And she actually died while giving birth to Benjamin. You know where they were? They were in Bethlehem. And so they buried her right there in Bethlehem. And so the city of Bethlehem gets tied to this woman, Rachel. So do you see that when God says to the people, hey, Rachel will weep for her kids. He's talking about Babylon coming, but God, riding through Jeremiah, who didn't realize what he was doing, is also writing about the coming of Herod's soldiers to come and kill these little kids. 
God knew it was going to happen. That's the hard thing in this whole story. And yet we can also take comfort in it because God didn't just send them and kill these kids. No, God actually identifies with them because God had a son too, a son who was killed by a bunch of Roman soldiers who was cut down and nailed to a cross. God knows exactly what these moms and dads in Bethlehem were feeling because God is seeing a broader story here, a bigger picture. And that's what we have to see as well. And one more time, Matthew gives us a prophecy. He quotes in uh, verse 23. He says that the prophets say that it might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. Now, this bothered me a little bit this week because there's no verse in the Bible that says that Jesus would be from Nazareth. And yet here Matthew is quoting some sort of prophet. However, if you realize that the city, excuse me, if the city of Nazareth, the people there were kind of looked down upon. In fact, when Nathaniel, who becomes one of Jesus' uh, disciples, when he hears that Jesus is from Nazareth, he says, Nazareth? Can anything good come from Nazareth? Like, the people of Nazareth were kind of rejected. They were scorned. They were looked down upon. Like, they were probably just a step up from Samaritans. They didn't really matter as much as, like, say, hey, the cool people in Jerusalem. You know, the city people are always cooler than the, you know, country folk, right? No. But they looked down upon these Nazarenes. Well, Isaiah 53 said that the Messiah would be rejected. He'd be scorned. He'd be ridiculed, just like someone from Nazareth. Throughout Jesus' entire life, he was made fun of. He was rejected. He was ridiculed. And yet, he lived through it to experience the human experience. Kids, how many of you have ever had someone call you a name? Every hand goes up. How many of you have had your feelings hurt because you were rejected? Mm, Pretty much every hand goes up. That's the human experience. That's what Jesus experienced. When you go through that tough thing, when someone calls you a name, when you lose your job, when a friend dies, you may find yourself wanting to question God. And yet, here is Jesus stepping into this world, feeling the same thing you feel, and he reminds us, the story's not done. It's not over yet. That's what God can do. God takes both the good things, the narrow escapes, the wonderful things, and uses them to help you and shape you and mold you, but he can also use the negative things. That's why Paul, who had a heavenly perspective, writes in the book of Romans, chapter 8, verse 28, that God will use all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. All things. That means that God will use the really good moments to shape you and mold you and get you into the image of his son. He will also use the negative moments to shape you and mold you for your good. And what is that good? He says it in the very next verse, verse 29. He says that he is going to conform you into the image of his son so that Jesus would be the firstborn, the preeminent, the leader, the guy in charge over many brothers and sisters. He is the ultimate Joseph from the book of Genesis. We are his brothers and sisters if we follow him, and yet we gladly will bow down before him. So this means that God is using the good things of life to shape you into the image of Jesus so that you will live like Jesus lived. And it also means that God is going to use the negative things of life to mold you and shape you so that you will also love 
like Jesus loved. My friend Bill is now um, in a, a totally different city, uh, different job. In fact, he had a stint as a pastor. He's now back in the marketplace. His wife has switched careers. She's been very successful. His daughter, even though her engagement was broken because of the, the accident, she ended up meeting another guy, got married, now has three great kids. Her, they've also got a son who's in the military. I mean, Bill's life has radically changed. It's, it's for the good. It's, it's basically a Job story where he felt like he lost everything and now he's got everything back. And, and things look really, really good. However, if you were to ask Bill, hey, do you trust God? I suspect that Bill would say yes, not because he's got a good job, his wife has a good job, he has all these awesome grandkids. I suspect that Bill would say, yes, I can trust God because he went through the hell of 2002 at the point where he was on the verge of breaking, where he didn't think I could take any more. He continued to cling on and came through. And his faith, his trust, helped him to see that the story wasn't done yet. Just recently, I had good friends give birth to their second child, a little girl. Precious, seeing the pictures on Facebook. And then they've had to post an update saying that their little girl wasn't doing very well. And so suddenly we started getting concerned. And so I shared it with Leanne. Uh, this is a couple who's actually supported Riverwood financially, has prayed for us. And so we started praying for them and for their little girl. And this week they had to post that their little girl passed away. Absolutely broke my heart. And Sarah, when she shares the news, she didn't share a parent of Bethlehem perspective and get mad at God and question him. She also didn't try and go with Mary and Joseph and try and explain it all away. Instead, Sarah had a heavenly perspective. And she could look at it and say, this hurts, this is tough, and yet God is still God, God is still good, and I can still trust him. Because she knows the story's not done yet. One day she will get to meet her daughter, who will be whole and healed and more glorious than she could ever dream that's the heavenly perspective, to realize that even in the midst of the pain, the story's not done. That's why you can trust God. You don't take a Stephen Fry approach and say, how dare you? You take a heavenly perspective and you say, yes. And so kids, I want to encourage you to seek trust by seeking Jesus. Trust him through the tough moments. Trust him through the good moments. Because as you have that heavenly perspective, you're then going to see God do something amazing in you because I have a feeling God wants to do something amazing through you. So Father, I just pray right now that you would help each and every one of us to get this perspective. It's tough, Lord. And so I pray you'd help us to be uh, willing to get into a growth group where, where we're with other believers, other followers of Jesus who can help us to keep that heavenly perspective. Uh, Lord, give us a motivation, a desire to get into the scriptures uh, that as we read it, we would continue to gain that heavenly perspective. Lord, we have a world that is crashing around us. They don't want us to be able to see you. So God, help us to exchange this horizontal perspective for a heavenly one so that our trust isn't based in our circumstances. It isn't based upon our experiences. It is based upon you and your character. And that in our good moments, we would praise you, but in our tough moments, we would trust you. 
So God, build within us an attitude, a spirit of trust. Make our faith strong so that you then, by doing this deep work in us, would do a great work through us and we can be a blessing to others. Father, we can't do it on our own. We need you to help us. But would you do this for your glory and for our joy? And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.